we've been talking about the categories of psalms. We talked about psalms of orientation, the world as it ought to be, for lack of a better phrase. We talked about psalms of disorientation, when we feel the way Job felt, like we don't live in a well-run world. And this week, I, I wanted to set aside some extra time to dig into a specific type of psalm of disorientation, which are the imprecatory psalms. What do we make of them? Scripture teaches about love, forgiveness, mercy, pretty consistently, pretty, uh, pretty relentlessly. And then you come to the imprecatory Psalms like 109 and 137, and you're taken aback a little bit. Remember, I didn't grow up in the Reformed tradition. I grew up in first the Baptist and then the Charismatic traditions. Charismatic tradition feels like an oxymoron when you say it out loud like that. Sort of the charismatic anti-tradition. How about that? Um, and I remember very clearly the first Sunday when I went to college. I went to the Daphne and I went to the college of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Neither one of us went to that college because it was the ARP college. We both went there, and it happened to be the ARP college. And so the first Sunday, uh, like every good freshman student. I had planned out exactly where I was going to worship that Sunday, and I got up raring to go to church. No, did none of that. Woke up at like 10.30 and realized I should probably be in church. And, oh, good, there's one right across the street from the dorms. I'll just walk over there to church. And so I went to Due West ARP Church. It was my first ever uh, service in a Presbyterian or Reformed setting. And like our practice, that church tried to sing one psalm every week. And so we stand up for it's either the second or the third hymn that morning. And they were just singing through the psalms in order over the years. And so we arrived at Psalm 109. And I remember standing there singing, may his days be few, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And I thought, what? is happening. What, what, who, I, I was mad. Who could sing this stuff? Who, this is, they're tough. What do we make of these Psalms in light of the other things that scripture teaches? Let's look at some contrast. Would you read Noah five, Matthew five, 44? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's look at some of these phrases uh, in comparison. Matthew 5.44 says, love your enemies. Psalms 109 and 137 say, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, may his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Huh. All right. Matthew 5.44 says, bless those that curse you. And the Psalms say, happy is he who seizes your infant and dashes them against the rocks. Okay. Matthew 5.44 says, do good to those who hate you. 
And the imprecatory psalms say, May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. <laughs> all right. One more. Matthew 5.44. Pray for those who persecute you. The psalms. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. What in the world? How do we understand these things? Well, over the years, you can imagine there have been a variety of responses to the imprecatory psalms. We'll start with the one that hopefully is least appealing to us which is, let's call it the critical response. The critical response, I mean that in the technical sense of the term, literary critics, historical critics. People who approach the Bible and they don't believe that it's God's perfect word anyway. And so for them, they can come up with the easiest explanation for these Psalms, which is that this part isn't God's word. Whether they believe any of the rest of it is, is irrelevant. This part isn't. And it's what we should expect, and this is the, the historical arrogance that happens so often in scholarship, this is what you should expect from ancient Neanderthals, is this type of godless, loveless speech. Let me read you a few things from commentaries that I have. I would give you the names of the people, but you don't know them and you don't care. Ultimately, of course, Christians at prayer will keep in mind that in praying the Psalms, they find themselves within a pre-Christian and sub-Christian ethos on a level far surpassed in the Sermon on the Mount. So what you've got in the Psalms is pre-Christian, below Christian, not as good religion, and then Jesus raises this new religion up to higher heights, and that's where love and forgiveness and mercy come in. Another one says that the imprecatory psalms display the undisguised gloating and cruel vindictiveness of an intolerant religious fanaticism. It is one of those dangerous poisonous blossoms which show the limits of the Old Testament religion. So you can see already what's, what's necessary in this view is the strong dichotomy between Old Testament and New. Old Testament God mean, New Testament God nice. That's what this comes down to. And so these pre-Christian followers of God had their hearts filled with this rage and this vengeance and retribution that Jesus would come and himself rebuke. The Catholic Church has removed these psalms from the liturgy of ours, which used to include all of the psalms straight through, um, because they say they clearly betray Old Testament Jewish ideas. This is that Old Testament. So even the Catholic Church is drawing this strong line between Old Testament and New Testament. And then one asks, this is a professor at uh, Trinity, I think. How can we really pray those Psalms today if we can no longer truly accept their meaning at every point? We need the New Testament to correct this imperfect Old Testament way of thinking. So this is just two different religions in the Old Testament and the New, and it's very easy to say, hey, that stuff is old, it's wrong, it's outdated, it's imperfect, it's suboptimal. Th those can't be our view. <laughs> We, we, we can't share that because it introduces two huge problems. One is the, the discontinuity between the Testaments, and two is the imperfection of parts of Scripture. Scripture doesn't say some of Scripture. 
is good and useful and true. It says all scripture is good and useful and true. And we'll get to that in a little bit. There's also a more conservative critical response. So these are from some names that you would recognize who are in general more toward our side of the spectrum, but still get this wrong. If you've ever read Halley's Bible Handbook, that's a familiar uh, layman's commentary. Um, But it says that the imprecatory Psalms are the opposite of Jesus's teaching and that it's because in the Old Testament, God accommodated himself to human ideas. He was working with what he had. And then in the New Testament is when he begins to deal with us according to his own ideas. Well, that's absurd. The revelation of God starts in Genesis 1, when God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. God does not fail to reveal his ideas to us in the Old Testament. Exodus 20 comes to mind with the Ten Commandments. Everything he said in the wisdom literature through the prophets. So they're they're straining hard because there's a, a, a real tension here, but the solution that they come up with is not acceptable. C.S. Lewis really terrible on the imprecatory psalms. C.S. Lewis says they're devilish. Well, that's probably not something we want to say of scripture, Um, which by the way, this is such a rabbit trail that will seem to come out of nowhere for you, but I think this is a good example. This is a good illustration of how the unforgivable sin is not a magic words test. It's a heart test. Because just be a super literalist for a minute. When C.S. Lewis says that the Psalms, 109 and 137, are of the devil, devil devil-ish, he is attributing to the power of Satan what was actually done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave these Psalms, and C.S. Lewis is saying Satan gave these Psalms. That is the definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's doing. So when our kids or teenagers are anxious that they're going to accidentally commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, point them to C.S. Lewis. He did this on purpose, and he did not commit the unforgivable sin. He was theologically incorrect about his interpretation of a psalm. Uh, Peter Craigie, a great Bible scholar in general, he wrote, if you've ever seen the word Bible commentaries, they have the different color stripes horizontally across. It's a very good series of commentaries. But he says that these Psalms are not in the oracles of God, that these are not ones that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're ones that were added by men, uh, those editors that I talked about over the last few weeks, and that these are not, uh, these are the, these, he called the sentiments are themselves evil, is what Craigie said. And so the summary is of this more conservative critical view that The parts of the Old Testament are inferior to what Jesus had in mind. They're they're inexcusable in light of what God was teaching. These are the words of man in contrast to the words of God. So that doesn't have the same discontinuity between the Testament's problem, but it still has a big problem of saying that not every word of God is perfect. Or, Or I guess they would say not every word in our Bibles is in fact the word of God that somehow these psalms are the word of man only. And so that's not acceptable either. But the question is then, what do we do? What do we do with them? Do we get rid of them? 
Do we ignore them? That's what most churches do. That's probably what many Christians do. Um, we, we make jokes about them, but we don't engage with them seriously because that would be a little bit uncomfortable. So let me attempt a biblical justification for the imprecatory Psalms. Let me try to talk through pl- uh, ways that we can understand them and perhaps even uh, use them as we use the other Psalms. Where we have to begin is with some starting point. Our, our foundational beliefs have to inform our interpretation of these Psalms. Daphne, can you go to 2 Timothy 3? Kathy, can you go to Leviticus 19? Stephen, can you go to Proverbs 25? Fagan, can you go to Psalm 94? Matt or Renee, can you go to Jeremiah 11? Two presuppositions, two starting points that are going to be essential to our understanding and interpretation of uh, the imprecatory Psalms. The first is from 2 Timothy. Would you read 16 and 17? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The imprecatory Psalms are profitable. They're all those other things, but they're profitable. They have a purpose that is good for God's people. It's not just that they're true. Paul says that to Timothy. But he also says they have a point. (laughs) They're they're useful. They are profitable. That's true of all of Scripture. And so that has to be true of the Psalms. How we would cherry-pick out two Psalms and say 148 are breathed out by God, but these two, no. Now, granted, people do that all the time with the Ten Commandments. Eight or nine of them are breathed out by God, but these two, no. Uh, But we can't do that. So they are profitable, and that's how we think about them. Second, I need to make this point through a couple of subpoints. but the second is there is a fundamental continuity between the Testaments. There's a fundamental continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This idea, we we believe in what's called progressive revelation, that God didn't reveal everything as clearly at the same time. So Genesis um, uh, Genesis 3.16 says that, um, that the seed of Eve would come and would go to war with the serpent and he would bruise his heel and he would crush his head. That's the first gospel promise. But Genesis 3.16 is not quite as clear as John 3.16, is it? They say the same thing, different levels of clarity. So we believe in progressive revelation, things that the Old Testament says in part and in general or in lack of detail, become fully clarified in Christ. Things get clearer through the giving of the law. They get clearer through the prophets who point to Jesus. And they get clearer in John the Baptist who says, him. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament word. And John the Baptist's word is him. This whole thing, him. And then you see that unfold. So we believe in progressive revelation. Yes, I'm not saying all scripture is equally clear. 
but it is all talking about the same thing. There's not contradictions between the Testaments. There's more detail, more clarity later, not a change of plan or a different idea or a different God. And so there's a fundamental continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the way I want to demonstrate that when we're talking about the imprecatory Psalms is to hone in on some of the specific critiques that would be used to break that continuity. The, the New Testament is love. The Old Testament is personal vengeance and retribution. Well, no, that's not correct. So how do we prove that's not correct? Well, we've got to go to the Old Testament. Who has Leviticus 19.18? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I'm sorry, Kathy, I asked for an, uh, a new, an Old Testament verse. Right? You heard that. Leviticus. That's old. And what does it say? Don't take vengeance. Love. Oh, huh, that's weird. Who's got Proverbs 25, 21, and 22? If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Wait, I, wait a minute. I, I thought the New Testament said, give food and water. To, wait, oh, okay. See, the Old Testament speaks against personal revenge lots of times. Personal revenge was never part of the Old Testament ethic. God never said or endorsed or tolerated or allowed as anything other than sin the desire for personal revenge. That's not something that was new with Jesus. All right, let's try another one. What about Psalm 94.1? O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. To whom does vengeance belong? Lord God of vengeance. Who's got Jeremiah 11.20? But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously? Who tests the heart and the mind? Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. What's the right approach to revenge in the Old Testament? It belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is the Lord's because he'll do it rightly. The Old Testament says that again and again. And no matter what doctrinal point you're pursuing you're going to find continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Slight rabbit trail. There will be times when the form that that continuity takes is changed. But the Bible will tell you. So in the Old Testament, in which Testament was God concerned about individual purity, about you being pure and setting yourself apart from the world? In which Testament was that a concern of God? Both Testaments. In the Old Testament, one of the significant forms that it took were dietary restrictions, were food laws. Here's what you can and can't eat, and here's how you can and can't eat it. So that every single meal, three times a day, because of some otherwise unnecessary thing you're having to do, you remember, be holy as I am holy. And then in the New Testament... 
God decides he doesn't care about individual purity anymore, right? No. Jesus comes and says, guys, it was never about the food. It's about all the things that come into you. All the things that come into you will determine what comes out of you and what makes you unclean. That's why to some, all things are clean. And then Peter has this vision and, hey, we get to eat everything now. Yay, I like this. We don't have to have two sets of dishes. I'm a fan of this. The same point, there's a fundamental continuity. What does God care about? He cares that his people see that being set apart as holy has consequences. When God sets you apart, this is what we're telling our children when we mark them in baptism. And this is what we should be telling our children as we raise them, pointing them backwards to your baptism, which is, I'm going to say this very uh, carelessly, but bad news for you. It's not about if you want to be set apart for God. You were baptized. You are set apart for God. So you are either living consistently with God setting you apart, or you're living in rebellion of God setting you apart. But there is no neutral option. Your baptism prevents any form of neutrality. God cares deeply that we walk with him in holiness, that we have a daily experience and recognition of what it means to be set apart. That took one form in the Old Testament. He tells us explicitly how and why it takes new forms in the New Testament. But there's this fundamental continuity that we've we've got to see between the scriptures. If we start building up disagreements between the Testaments, it's all going to fall apart. Because now you're standing in authority over God's word, deciding which parts are true and false, which parts are relevant, which parts are or old and should be dismissed and which parts are okay for now. And that's what the vast majority of churches with the word Christian on their sign do today is they stand in authority over scripture and say these parts, but not those. That is dangerous behavior. And we see where it leads. It leads to a religion of self. That's what we all would do. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. If we got to go through the scriptures the way Thomas Jefferson did and said, I like these parts and I don't like those parts. I bet we'd be pretty good Bible keepers because our Bible would be down to just the pages that come easiest for us. And that's an element of that is introducing a discontinuity between the Testaments that isn't there. Hey, Paul. Yep. Quick question. What was the uh, Proverbs reference? 25, 21, 22. Chapter 25, verses 21, 22. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so now turn to Psalm 109 and put a finger on 137. Oh, are these the only two? Like, are there more? Like, I feel like I should know this answer, but. I think, I, I, you should know the answer, but I can't even say with certainty. I believe these are the only two complete imprecatory psalms. There are, if memory serves, lines of imprecation in a couple of other psalms, but these are fully imprecatory psalms. There are eight that contain lines of imprecation. All right, scan Psalm 109. We, we've, we studied last week the Psalms of disorientation. We studied the different kinds of Psalms of disorientation. Take a stab, no shame in getting it wrong. What kind of Psalm is Psalm 109? Apart from imprecatory, thank you. What, what, how would you categorize it in our buckets? Remember, we had hymns and we had wisdom we had different buckets for types of psalms. 
verses 6 through 20 are the imprecatory part. Ah! So we're in Psalms of Disorientation. We're in a lament. The complaint is verses 1 through 5. The imprecation is 6 through 20. Then there's a plea for help in 21 to 29. There's a hymn in verse 30, and there's confidence in God's response, verse 31. Psalm 109 is actually an individual lament. Complaint, it has this imprecation section, which is new. We haven't seen that in a lament yet. But then it goes back to the standard pattern of an individual lament. Complaint, asking God for help, praise of God, and confidence that God can bring help. That's, that's our lament. But we've added something to the lament. So in this one, you've got, these are verses. One through five is your complaint. What's the complaint here? Yeah. People saying bad stuff about me. My reputation's being slandered. Bad stuff's happening. Everybody's turning somebody against me. This is no good. Then you have verse 30, which is a hymn, which is praise. And because of that, there's verse 31, which is confidence in God's response. So what we're dealing with is a very standard, kind of right down the middle, by the book, individual Lament, except verses 6 through 20, which is this imprecation. Calling down of curses on your enemy is an imprecation. Well, calling down your curses on anyone, but I don't know why you do that on your friends. This is an individual lament. So now go to 137. Look at it through a similar lens. It's also a lament. But what's different about it? Aha, it's a communal lament. 137 is a communal or community, you can call it either one, lament. So you have the cry for help, the complaint, you have the imprecation, which is four through nine. And just like the other laments that we looked at, they may not have all of the sections explicitly spelled out, but there's a call in verse seven, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. And I, I know it's a strange one that we'll get to in a minute, but verse nine, blessed shall he be. It's confidence in the goodness of God. It just so happens to be the confidence in the goodness of God is that they're going to murder their children. Oh, not murder, kill. So 137 is a community lament. All right, so now let's talk about what we really want to talk about, which is what? What, what are these? How, how, do we, how do we do this? Both psalms arise out of what? Well, remember, these are the psalms of disorientation. So these rise out of distress. There's real distress in the world. There's real distress in life. And both of these psalms have a real kind of honesty to them. <laughs> now, something can be raw. It can be honest, transparent, real, and be false. People have false feelings all the time. People have sinful feelings all the time. 
But remember, we've got to fall back on our presuppositions. <laughs> and if this was wicked speech, if this was error, if this was sin, we have to believe from Scripture that God would have given us really clear evidence to read these parts of the Psalms differently from how we read the other parts of the Psalms. He would say, hey, you remember when the Israelites said this? Yeah, that was bad. Don't say that. But we get nothing like that. We get these treated the same way the other laments are treated. So if our starting point is that they're in the Bible and therefore they are true, then we start asking, all right, well, then what do they teach us? And one of my seminary professors, when he taught on these Psalms, said that this is a one point sermon. The imprecatory Psalms teach you that life is not shallow. Life is not shallow. Let's come at that from a few different ways. If you think that this kind of response, dash their children's head against the rock, if you think that kind of response, no matter what precipitated it, is absolutely over the top and unbelievable, you have a shallow view of life. That may be for good reason. It may be that you haven't experienced that much pain. And so I'm not asking you to experience that much pain. I don't want that for you. But if you think this type of visceral response is just over the top, beyond the pale, what you have a shallow view of life because life contains deep, 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 deep hurt and serious wickedness. And that would be the second point, which is if you think, so let's say you're taking this vengeance and you're handing it over to God. And the offensive part of the Psalm is the vengeance specifically that you're asking God to do. Well, there's two options that God has. God can say, I see where you're coming from, but no, I'm not going to do that. It wouldn't be right. Or God can do it. And it would be right. And if you think it's barbaric that God could possibly respond this way, you have a shallow view of sin. You have a shallow view of evil. You just don't think anything is that bad to warrant that kind of response. And so you're saying even a holy God in the face of unspeakable evil that his people experience at the hands of evildoers, and you say God's attitude should be, Life without parole? What, 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 what do you think is the appropriate? And then we're back to Job. Good on you for standing in judgment of God, that you would be a much more reasonable sentencer than God is. Now, you have a shallow view of sin if you think that this is uh, barbaric. And then, third point, if you think it's wrong for a believer to ask God, to respond in this way, you have a shallow view of prayer. So if you really can't get there with the imprecatory Psalms, I would ask you to consider, is your view of life shallow? You really don't think things that are that bad happen to people. And then we could just start swapping stories of things that really do happen that are that bad to people. 
Read the, go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Do, do, like, that's an extreme way to start, but if you're missing out on that and you think life is, is shallow, uh, that can help. And then if you think God would be dramatic or, or, or barbaric to actually do these things, I think your view of evil is shallow. You don't understand God's holiness and you don't understand the depths of evil that exist in this world, that exist in the universe. And then if you think it's wrong, both of those are okay, but God should just do them when he's going to do them. It's wrong for us to ever ask for it. You have a shallow view of prayer. Because prayer is this honest wrestling with God. Prayer requires our genuine participation to be prayer. And so if the only reason you wouldn't say these things in prayer is because you think it would be improper, you know, God knows that's going on too. You're not really hiding those thoughts from him. So what do we do? How do we understand them? Well, look at both Psalms. Look at, look at 109 again. Uh, Stephen, are you in 109? No. Uh, are you in 109? Will you read 4? Verse 4. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. I give myself to prayer. What's the psalmist doing in the midst of this cry for curses. He's turning it over to God. This is not personal vengeance. He's turning it over to God. Noah, read 26 and 27. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Whose hand? Help me, Lord. This is what I believe the best help to look like. I am honestly bringing that up to you, calling out to you for help. But if this happens, it's your hand, not mine. You do this, Lord. I'm handing over my desire for revenge to your justice in vengeance. That's a really, really hard thing to do from the depths of pain from which this person is crying out. The same thing happens in Psalm 137.7. The, the, the psalmist commits their situation into the hand of God. Similarly, uh, Daphne, can you read 109.21? But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For what? What's the cause being vindicated here? Your name's sake. Ultimately, the prayer is for the establishment of God's cause, not our own. And it's a really critical part of these prayers. The same thing happens in 137. Is anybody at 137? Renee, will you read 4 and 5? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Read 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Who is the offended party? What's the cause? We're talking about Jerusalem versus Babylon. We're talking about God's people versus the enemies of God's people. We're not talking about me personally against my enemy. I'm handing that over to God and saying, God, your causes are be established. Your purposes 
be worked out. Also, both of these, and you heard it there in the, the verses that Renee just read, you can also hear it in 109, Noah, read 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. And 26. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. What is steadfast love in the Bible? It's a covenant word. All of these are tied back to the covenant. The, the, the calling of vengeance on God's enemies is tied to the covenant. Lord, work within your covenant. Keep your covenant promises and execute your covenant curses. All of this is put back within the context of the covenant. And that's the massive difference here, is that Matthew 5 has in view personal revenge. Don't do that. Don't pay your enemies back the way they got you. Love them. Pray for those who persecute you. Somebody demands you go a mile, go with them too. They demand your cloak, give them your tunic as well. Somebody strikes you on one cheek, offer them the other. The whole ethos is exactly the same as the verses we read from the Old Testament a little while ago that said, don't seek personal vengeance. doesn't belong to you. Vengeance belongs to God. The other important theological point, one, Matthew 5 doesn't have to do with personal revenge. Two, the coming of Christ does not do away with judgment. It doesn't go from in the Old Testament, there are covenant curses, and in the New Testament, there's not. That's not a thing. The coming of Christ does not do away with judgment. So now, given that theological grounding, we can answer the question, do words like this in precatory Psalms, do they have a place in the life of the New Testament church and the New Testament believer? Or do we just leave them behind? Well, absolutely yes. What do you think you're saying? Well, let me... Let me Ask it as a, a, as a trick question quiz. All of you who worship here have participated in imprecation, calling down covenant curses every single Sunday in worship. You've said it with your own mouths every single Sunday. Do you know the phrase that you've said? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. The kingdom of this world will be destroyed and every lover of it will have poured out on them the wrath of God so that his kingdom comes in its fullness. You don't get one without the other. So yeah, there's a place for that. Um, Matt, turn to Galatians 1. Pam, turn to Luke 18. Sally, can you turn to Revelation 6? Again, the, the, the biggest problem with so much Bible study and teaching today in churches is, is rejecting this continuity between the Testaments, is acting like there's something utterly different, contradictory happening in the New Testament versus the Old but this imprecation, this idea of covenant curses, is all over the New Testament. Galatians 1, 8, and 9. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel con- contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Because it wasn't enough to say it once. So Paul says it twice. Let him be accursed. Who's got Luke 18, 6 through 8? And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect and cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You get it? (laughs) There will be justice. Covenant blessings and covenant curses for faith and for faithlessness. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a little of given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. God has a fixed number of martyrs. And their blood cries out for vengeance. And we say, no, the Jesus of the New Testament is too nice to avenge those who were persecuted unto death for his sake. What kind of madness is that? Jesus had some very harsh covenantally grounded curse things to say. And the Bible teaches that that is right. That's the other side of the coin of God bringing justice. Yes, it's our vindication in the righteousness of Christ. It's also curses for those who have rejected Christ and persecuted his people. And the context in which these Psalms are used today uh, if you want to jot down Acts 1, uh, look at Acts 1, 21, and then you can read, or we're reading in worship as well, Revelation 17 through 19 references both of these psalms. And it references them in the context of the final judgment. That's what the psalmist is crying out for. It's in a raw, honest way. It's, it's disturbing, the detail. And, and the, the, but if we don't have a shallow view of life, and we don't have a shallow view of sin, and we don't have a shallow view of God, we should be sympathetic to and have some means of understanding what would make someone cry out this way. And so then the only question becomes, what are they crying out for? Is that okay? Is the thing they're crying out for okay? And ultimately, when you read this, they're crying out for the final judgment. They're crying out that God's enemies, that those who have persecuted his people would be destroyed, would, would, I mean, the Proverbs talks about would be caught in their own nets, would fall into their own pits, would be harmed by their own sin. This is just the extreme language form of that. And no, we shouldn't use it uncarefully. But that's different than saying we can't use it. So it's clear, we've talked about this in this class, we're talking about this in the sermon series, the book of Psalms was the prayer book and the hymn book of the people of God. And so 
we shouldn't casually remove prayers and hymns from the vocabulary of God's people and say these are no longer useful today. We're going to skip over them. And I'm not an idiot. You can't use them uncarefully either. There are some problems that have to be overcome. One of them is just the mood of our culture. The idea that our culture thinks everybody should just live and let live. They don't actually do that, mind you. The ones who say that the loudest are the ones seeking the most bloodshed. But, but the words are, live and let live, isn't their forgiveness. And so it does require some teaching of, oh, there is absolutely forgiveness. Christ forgives all who come to him in repentance. And what about those who don't? Are we allowed to have any verses in the Bible about the ones who don't? Or is that too mean? And it's not a good conversation for a room of people at a dinner party, but it can be a good one-on-one conversation of, what's the most wicked thing that's ever been done to you? What's the most wicked thing that's ever been done to one of your children? And if that perpetrator engaged in that behavior again and again and again and again and again and never ever stopped and never repented and never admitted wrongdoing and, 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 and doubled down on their wickedness. What do you think a holy God ought to do? So yeah, there, there's something to deal with there. Um, God's people need to be educated as well on just as we did, the purpose of these psalms and how to, uh, their actual context. And once we understand that context, the appropriateness of them. And then we don't want to be imbalanced. There's a lot of psalms, 150, and there's not a lot of imprecatory psalms. There's a lot of laments, and there's not a lot of imprecatory laments. And so again, just back to that idea of being as balanced as scripture is balanced. We have a lament that has no movement toward God whatsoever. Psalm 88. It's just all dark and gets darker and worse and worse and worse. But we have one of those. All the other laments have movement. And so we said, let's be balanced. Scripture gives us permission to feel that way. The believer should not feel that way terribly often in life. That should be the exception, not the rule. Well, I would say the same of the imprecatory Psalms. Scripture gives you permission to feel this way. It gives you permission to pray this way when you will set aside individual vengeance and hand it over to God. But this should be the exception and not the rule. This should not be your daily prayer is for the destruction of your own enemies. All right, so finally, just bullet points real quick, everything we covered, make sure we don't miss it. This is a summary from one of my seminary professors. Imprecatory Psalms are the prayers of Christ as he is the judge of the world. So here's one other thing. When I preached on Psalm 1 and in this class, Psalm 1 makes it clear to us on the other side of the cross that Christ is the perfect speaker and singer of all the Psalms. Christ is the only one who can be the blessed man of Psalm 1 in his moral perfection. Go through these two Psalms and imagine that Christ is the one singing them. Do you have a problem with that? Do you think he's wrong to sing or pray those psalms? No. Look at what they've done to his people. Look at what they've done to his world. Look at what they've done to his church. Look at what they did to him. 
He's not wrong to sing them. In Christ, neither are you. In Christ, praying for that judgment against his enemies, you're not wrong to sing them either. So personal vengeance was never the focus, not in the Old Testament, not in the New. We're capable of doing two things at the same time. We can love our enemies and pray that wickedness be judged. We can do both and should. We can pray for those who persecute us and pray that justice would still be done. We can bless those who curse us, pray that they will be converted, and pray that the unconverted will be judged according to the covenant. And we can joyfully die for Christ if he called us to, and we can petition, how long until you avenge the blood of your saints? Their, their, their intention, because of the finite nature of our minds, but they're not in contradiction. 